Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. Happy Independence Day. Virginia, we do technically have two more days. But you know what? I'll give it to you. It's definitely worth celebrating all week. (laughs) (laughs) So true. It is totally worth celebrating all week. And well, Lauren, you actually probably already know this, but the members... Uh, Of course. Of course. Of course. Of course you do. (laughs) The, The members of the Continental Congress, they actually voted on the independence of the states July 2nd, 1776. And John Adams, he was so convinced that July 2nd would be the day that Americans celebrated our independence every year that he wrote just that, that July 2nd would be this amazing day that was celebrated annually with fireworks. But the Declaration of Independence was actually dated July 4th. So one of my college professors, Dr. McMullen, who we've actually had on the Daily Signal podcast, He said that the reason why we celebrate on the 4th instead of the 2nd was because July 2nd, 1777 rolled around, we were in the middle of fighting the Revolutionary War, and people kind of just forgot the significance of July 2nd, and it was July 2nd, and people were like, oh man, we were supposed to celebrate, we'll just celebrate on the 4th, and then the 4th stuck. So I'm sure there were probably maybe other reasons, um, but I was like, oh, that's that's pretty interesting to know. So all that to say, you are completely free to celebrate all week long through Saturday, even Sunday. Why not? Why not? You know, I'm grateful this year, especially that they decided to celebrate on the 4th because there's nothing better than a holiday that falls on a Saturday. You get the Friday off before and you really just get to spend a long time with your family. So true. Yeah. And Lauren, you're getting to celebrate with your family down in Florida, right? Yeah, so I just, I actually flew back uh, last weekend to Florida, so I've been here for a couple days, and I'm really excited. My uh, middle sister is taking a trip, and with all kind of the craziness, they have decided to leave us their little baby um, this weekend. So not only do I get to celebrate the 4th of July on my parents' farm, we're going to have my niece with us. So we're just so excited to kind of share her first 4th of July with her. What about you, Virginia? So I am meeting up with some family in Pennsylvania. So it should be a good time going to the Poconos and going to explore. There's going to be a pool. So I'm excited. (laughs) That sounds awesome. (laughs) But whatever you all are planning on doing over the 4th, however you're celebrating our independence, we hope that you have a fantastic time. Soak up the sun. Enjoy freedom. Okay, Lauren. Now, what do we have queued up for today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we kick off the show with just a couple items Virginia and I feel very strongly about. We're going to give you a quick breakdown of the media's coverage of the new COVID-19 cases, discuss the Supreme Court's latest abortion ruling, which poses a critical health risk to women. We are also excited to interview Senator Martha McSally about her new book, Dare to Fly, and find out how she became the first woman in the Air Force to fly a fighter jet in combat. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. So, Lauren, I know you have been waiting 
all week for this. We're kind of dubbing this section of the show like the rant time, <laughs> maybe Lauren's rant, because Lauren, you always have such good things to say, and I love your passion on certain topics, <laughs> and when you just, yeah, when you get into it and you just talk. So give us the lowdown. What is going on? Tell us a little bit about the, the media's latest coverage of COVID-19. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, I am in Florida, and as I was getting ready to go to Florida, everybody was like, oh my gosh, are you worried? Like, wh why are you going to Florida? I can't believe that's so... And yes, Florida is seeing a spike in cases, but that's because Florida is opening up. And, you know, we were supposed to, 15 days to stop the spread. We were supposed to stay in, you know, protect the hospitals from not being overcrowded. But Florida is just allowing people to do business and making individual decisions. And, you know, DeSantis even rolled back uh, opening the bars or closing it. But you read these stories, like I read one the other week, that was some girl went out to a bar in Jack's Beach with 14 of her friends and didn't wear a mask. And she was upset that she got sick. And I'm like, friend, you went out to a crowded bar with more than just a couple friends and you didn't wear a mask. Like, you weren't taking responsibility for your actions. If you had gone maybe to brunch with a couple friends and you wore your mask, you know, in the appropriate times, well, you wouldn't be in this situation. And it's not the governor's fault. It's not the president's fault. The fault lies only with yourself. You you would made the decision to go to the bar. But even if you look kind of bigger than that, Florida is seeing a spike in cases, but the spike in cases are with the young people, or like that girl that I mentioned who went to the bar. They're not with the elderly, and Florida even has a higher than average elderly population, and it's just really showing that this is normal people going out and getting sick and recovering. And this is what, you know, we are not God as society. I think with technology and kind of with this golden era that we've had, we kind of see ourselves as being able to get over anything. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, the earth is bigger than any individual human, and, and we can fight forever against viruses, but we will just never, we're not going to live forever and, and we can't stop nature. And so at some point we just need to protect the elderly. My, my grandparents were supposed to come this weekend. It would have been so special to spend the weekend with them and my niece, but they're in their eighties and we made the decision of, you know what, it's, it's not smart for them to be traveling and to be with us because my, my dad is working, my brother-in-law is working, but for my own heart health, like I've been going to the gym and, and I just, you look at the numbers of other places in, in the country and, you know, Florida has 130 some odd cases, but the death rate is not going up. And the reason why the media likes to fixate on Florida and these cases going up is because Florida is a Republican controlled state. It is uh, a swing state uh, generally, and it's just a way to kind of show that when people make their own decisions, they make bad decisions. And that's not true. They're cherry picking cases. They're cherry picking numbers because mostly people are fine. They're getting it. They're asymptomatic. They're going on and, and the economy is recovering. So I'm just really tired of hearing about how Florida is so stupid. And, and you know, you can make fun of Florida for a, a ton of things. You know, most of the Florida man stories that I hear, I living in Florida my whole life, I 100% agree, you know, someone throwing an alligator through the windy, window at Wendy's, like, let's all laugh at that. But, but taking steps to reopen our economy while still being safe is, you know, 
like we can't live in our houses forever. And so, yeah, we have to, to move slowly. We have to be willing to roll back, but just don't want to point fingers at Florida and say, wow, they're so stupid without actually looking at the data yourself. It's just been driving me nuts, Virginia. Yeah, no, Lauren, I am glad that you raised that. Heritage actually did a really great event a couple weeks ago talking specifically about Florida and the model that Florida has taken to, to protect the elderly. And we are, like you say, like we're seeing a spike in cases, but that like <laughs> the majority, major majority of those cases are in people under the age of 40. And so Florida has been super successful the entire time of protecting that most vulnerable population. And they're continuing to do that. And you're not hearing too much about that in the media because coverage, unfortunately, is super biased. And I've even been really interested uh, in how the media has been covering uh, the effect, the potential effect of protests on the spike. Uh, You know, just recently, thousands and thousands of people were gathering in the streets together. uh, And, you know, I tried Googling just the other day, protests and COVID-19 spike. And what came up was a page of articles. And I think all but one had the headline that read something sort of like, protests did not lead to COVID-19 spike. (laughs) And I'm just really fascinated at how fervently the media is covering just that angle Well, then you kind of look at the other side and it's like, okay, well, many churches around the country are still not allowed to gather. Like here in D.C., people can't gather in groups larger than 50 for any reason. And yet it's it's fine for thousands of people to gather on the streets and protests. And I mean, I want to be clear, like peaceful protests are a constitutional right. I have no issue whatsoever with thousands of people who want to to peacefully gather and protest. What I do take issue with is a double standard on the part of the media. I was really fascinated in particular by one NBC article I found entitled Black Lives Matter protests haven't led to COVID-19 spikes. It may be due to people staying home. It was a really fascinating article that was, I feel like it was reasoned kind of poorly. Um, But pretty much it drew the conclusion that like, well, it's a little too early to tell. The spike probably isn't because of the protests, but it's possible. (laughs) It's like, okay. It's so ridiculous. And it's so frustrating because, you know, like you mentioned, Virginia, like you weren't anti-people protesting, you know, people have a First Amendment right, but we need to be able to look at the facts and, and look at really how this is affecting people. And when the media wants to kind of play games with which numbers they're reporting and, and you know, the dates, we just can't see the picture. And, and Americans are, you know, either they're staying home when they're not supposed to be because, you know, these numbers are inflated one way, or they're going out when they should be staying home. We're not seeing an honest picture. And I, I think, like, I'm so glad you brought up the protests, because it, it, it's just, it's not fair. And there are so many well-intentioned Americans who are being harmed by this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and Lauren, I think the point that you raise about personal responsibility, like, at the end of the day, that that is our job. Like, continue to be careful when you go out. But I think we've reached a point where it's like, all right, it's time to live life, but do so cautiously. Yeah. And and the thing about personal responsibility is you, you should wear your mask if you're in a building with someone, if you're close to someone, you know, it, it stinks. Everybody hates it, but just go ahead and do it. But those who are standing on their 
you know, high horse on your mask. Like if I see one person post on Instagram, like, see, look at me in my mask. Dr. McDreamy from Grey's Anatomy posted, it's a great day to save lives with his mask on. Like, do you take a picture of your toilet after you flush me and like, look, I left it nice for the next person. Or like, do you take a picture of you wearing your seatbelt? Like, no, these are common human decency things. And just you wearing your mask doesn't make you better than anybody else. It makes you just a normal person. So you know, when you're talking to somebody about wearing a mask who maybe is, for some reason or another, doesn't want to wear it, don't come up and be like, oh my god, why do you want to kill my grandma? Just be like, <laughs> hey, like, you know, I feel the same way, but we're in this weird time and, you know, just like wear it here. And, and you know what, if we go for a walk outside, I'll stay six feet away from you and, and you don't have to wear your mask. So I'm really, I think, maybe it's just being inside so long, but I'm really being driven crazy by both sides of this masturbate. (laughs) Be reasonable, I think, is the bottom line of all that. (laughs) All right, well, I do want to switch gears for just a minute and talk about the Supreme Court case ruling this week that, in my opinion, really reveals the true motivation of the abortion industry and that's being to drive a profit. On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled five to four that an abortion clinic in Louisiana is not required to have admitting privileges at a hospital in order to perform abortions. Chief Justice John Roberts, he was the deciding vote in the case. And it's fascinating because actually he voted uh, against a similar Texas case in 2016, but he voted in favor of this ruling because of the court's 2016 decision, which I found really fascinating. There's a good piece on the Daily Signal that talks a little bit more in depth about that. Um, So to give you a little bit of the breakdown of this case, this was June Medical Services versus Russo. So outpatient medical facilities like, you know, uh, a dentist office, let's say, that maybe does surgeries, they're required to have admitting privileges at a hospital, meaning if something goes wrong during that procedure, the doctor who performed the operation can call the hospital where he has admitting privileges, speak directly to doctors there, and get that patient in the door to receive treatment as quickly as possible. In Louisiana, abortion providers were struggling to gain that admitting privileges at local hospitals, so they realized if the laws aren't changed, then some of our abortion clinics are actually going to have to close down which would mean there would probably end up being only one abortion provider in the whole state. Uh, So the abortion providers sued, and ultimately the case made its way to the Supreme Court. Dr. Damon Cudahy, who has been a practicing physician for 17 years, he's treated women who suffered from botched abortions, and he wrote a piece in the Daily Signal saying, in my assessment of patients, precious time was lost while attempting to contact the abortion provider or at least to obtain medical reports that would have helped me to better care for this patient who presented to the emergency room. So, I mean, it it seems pretty common sense. If abortion providers care about women, which they so adamantly claim to do, it would only follow logically that they would want to make sure that those women could have the best care as quickly as possible if a medical complication arose. But you kind of saw from this whole situation, from this case, that, you know, the abortion industry once again showed its true hand. They're a business. And the threat of having to close clinics means a loss of revenue. So they fought the law in order to line their pockets, which ultimately puts women in danger. Yeah, Virginia, there's just so much to be frustrated about. 
in this case, the fact, you know, that, that Justice Roberts, you, I can't even, I've been trying to follow his logic and it, it's just all over the place. And yeah, the fact that these abortion clinics care more about, like you mentioned, the dollars and just being able to do abortions than the women who are getting it. Uh, yeah, it shows their true colors and we just, we have to change the culture. You know, like as much as I would have loved to rely on the Supreme Court to, to make the right decision in this case, you know, they, they didn't. And now it's up to our listeners and it's up to us, Virginia, to, to have these difficult conversations with our friends, to talk about, you know, why we're pro-life and why it's so important to us. Because, you know, it doesn't look like there is an easy route through the legislature or through the courts. Yeah. Yeah, Lauren, I think you hit the nail on the head. It At the end of the day, like it does, it comes down to holding life as precious and valuable. And that's the life of that unborn child and protecting the life of that woman. So kind of, wow, we are living in wild times. <laughs> All right. Well, stay tuned because we uh, are so excited to talk with Senator Martha McSally about her service in the Air Force and her new book, Dare to Fly. But First, I want to tell you all about one of the great resources that I love. You know, YouTube is probably, it's definitely one of my guilty pleasures. I really enjoy watching short videos on a variety of topics. So I'm always looking for videos that are actually educational and beneficial to me in some way. And the Daily Signal YouTube channel never disappoints. There is so much binge-worthy content from policy and news explainers to documentaries. So if you're not driving, go ahead, pull out your phone right now and subscribe to the Daily Signal YouTube channel so you can be in the know on the issues that you care about. We are joined by Arizona Senator Martha McSally, an Air Force veteran and America's first woman to fly a fighter jet in combat and command a fighter squadron. And of course, the author of the newly released book, Dare to Fly, Simple Lessons in Never Giving Up. Senator McSally, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me on. Senator, I know that you know when you decide to release a book and you decide on that date, you have no way of knowing what is going to be happening in the world at that time. But right now, in the face of COVID-19 and after the death of George Floyd, so many Americans are asking the question, how can I make a difference in my community? Your book, Dare to Fly, Simple Lessons in Never Giving Up, really seems like it has come out absolutely at the perfect time. So what would you say to those who are feeling overwhelmed right now by America's economy, concerns about COVID-19, and the racial injustices that we see in America? Well, thanks for the opportunity to share just some nuggets of wisdom I've learned in my own life. You know, I've had some unique opportunities for sure, uh, flying fighter jets and, you know, climbing mountains and suing the Secretary of Defense for <laughs> making our service women wear burkas. Um, but but what I talk about in the book are, are just very much common human experiences like fear and how you overcome your fear and find your own courage. Uh, how you are able to be resilient uh, and find your faith and prevail in the midst of incredible adversity and grief. And I, again, I never would have imagined uh, that my book would be published at this time where so many Americans can relate to fear. They can relate to the uncertainty, uh, fears for the future, or even just feeling like 
helpless about what is it they could do, like you mentioned. And so I, you know, I share perspective by telling my stories about things you can do. And for example, when I talk about my eight-year battle with the Pentagon to challenge them over making our service women wear burqas, that I didn't just wake up and say, I'm going to sue the Secretary of Defense today. <laughs> you know, like it's a really great career move. But what I was inspired by when I had the first decision to make which was whether I was going to walk by a problem or not, right? I walked by the duty desk. I was deployed overseas, just brand new female fighter pilot, trying to focus on doing my job. And I see a picture of a young enlisted woman wearing this full Muslim garb. And I could have just walked by it and said, it's not my problem. I was in Kuwait, they're in Saudi Arabia, but I felt a conviction that's wrong. And then the next question is, well, what are you going to do about it? And it's a part of our culture in the military, you know, to look yourself in the mirror and say, what can I do? What is the next right thing to do today? And sometimes trying to change the world can feel like a, you know, climbing Mount Everest. But what's the next thing you can do? What's the next step you can take in order to be impactful and make a difference? So I share my story of this eight-year battle to include suing the Secretary of Defense and getting a law passed through Congress as a one-woman, you know, lobbying campaign. But I was able to do it and very practical steps about how you can make a difference. If you feel that conviction, I, I talk about how I was inspired by the book of Esther during that whole period of time when I was just deciding, should I, should I do nothing about this or should I follow my conviction? And, and there's the, the, um, uh, in Esther 414, it's, can it be that you were put in this position for such a time as this? And that just spoke to me and it, through my whole journey, do the next right thing in that battle. I continued to go back to that. What's the next right thing to do? And could it be that I was put in this position for such a time as this? So I think a lot of your listeners can relate to that right now. Uh, what is it that you can do to help another right now? What is it that we can do to bring out the best in America? We're often seeing the worst of America. What can we do in order to provide healing and hope for people, whether it's from the coronavirus and lives and livelihoods or the, uh, the injustices that people feel, but then the fear of the unrest that's coming from that where criminals are taking advantage of it. What is it that you can do right now in your family, in your community, in your, in your neighborhood, in your state or your country uh, only you can answer that, but my book is uh, intended to be a wingman to you in your journey so that I can provide that encouragement for you to do amazing things in your own life. Wow, Senator, I just love that, all of that so much. At the age of 12, you lost your father, and his dying words to you were, quote, make me proud. And ultimately, we all want to do that, want to make our parents and our loved ones proud of us. And I'm sure your dad would be very proud of you. But how have those words, the words of your father, steered the course of your life? Well, my life has been shaped by his, his death. And like many people can relate to, I mean, he was here one day and then all of a sudden he was gone. We were hanging out together in the summer one day. And then by that evening, he went upstairs to lie down. He wasn't feeling well. By that night, he was in the hospital and in the middle of the night, he just knew in his spirit, even though he was stable, he said, you know what, I'm going to die. I need to see my children. And he just knew in his spirit to, 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 to summon us. And we got to visit with him 
I was 12. I didn't really understand it. I didn't, you know, we talked about a lot of mundane things like you'd talk about with your loved ones every day, school, swimming, siblings, you know, the, the dog, you know, all those things in life. But in the course of that conversation, which I never would have imagined would be the last, he told me to make him proud. And the next day he had another heart attack and left us. And it propelled me on this path, not to get up the next day, you know, dun, 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 you know, how do I make my father proud? It was a tough time. I mean, the, that's a rough age anyway, uh, to lose a parent. Then I'm the youngest of five kids. My mom, you know, now a single mom, she went back to school and back to work, uh, to take up the mantle, to lead the family. And it was a tumultuous time for me. I was, you know, I was, I was grieving, but I was driven and those can be exhausting elements in junior high and high school. But each I learned, I wouldn't have been able to put my finger on it until later when I look back, I learned each day is a gift hmm. um, through that loss. And I, I, through my adult life, whenever I'm faced with a decision and, you know, people laugh at me when I say this, or they think it's weird. I say, well, if this is the last year of my life, is this the the, the, the purpose for me? Is this the highest and best use of my time and my energy and my talents to make the biggest impact for others? And people go like, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would you say that? And like, well, you have to live like that hmm. um, to be purposeful. Um, you know, and look, some days, you know, you got to, you know, you got to vacuum the house and clean the toilets, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't be like climbing mountaintops and changing laws every single day. But if you are purposeful about you know, what is it I'm doing with my time and my life? And am I, am I being a good steward of it and, and leaving a good legacy if today's my last or if this year's my last? So it's formed and shaped my decision-making to treat every day like a gift. And, you know, he came from humble circumstances. He lived the American dream, lost his dad before he was born. His mom, when he was a teenager, he started working at age eight and never stopped. And people believed in him and, you know, helped him get a work-study scholarship. He served in the Navy and used his GI Bill. And he was just driven to make a better life for us kids. And I benefited from that. And it literally, at age 49, he worked himself to death to, to provide opportunities for us. And I feel the, the, you know, the responsibility to carry on that mantle and uh, do something meaningful with my life. And so that's really what's sh shaped me in every decision I make. And, and again, it's not been when I went off to the Air Force Academy at 18, it's not like I was like, okay, what am I going to do to make dad proud? You're, you're a teenager when you're making this decision. So it's, it's in your subconscious, mm -hmm. um, but it propelled me to step out of my fears uh, and to push myself in order to meet my own destiny. Well, and, and you talk in your book about how shy you were as a child and that decision yeah. to join the Air Force and then ultimately to pursue becoming a fighter pilot, that that wasn't necessarily the career that probably family members or friends who knew you as a kid would have chosen for no. you. So tell me a little bit about how all that transpired. Yeah, I was. I was a shy, pudgy kid and I never would have motion sick, too. <laughs> so I never would have imagined, you know, I'd be, you know, the first woman to fly in combat in our history. It's amazing how your life's journey goes. For me, like I, I've I found a level of feistiness for sure that is in my personality as I was growing up. And, you know, that could go either way, right? You could use that in a negative way to just kind of rebel against everything, or you can channel your feistiness towards something, you know, be a change agent and make a difference. And uh, so on my own path, I went to the Air Force Academy. I was really 
looking for opportunities to get a good education and not saddle my mom with debt. I really didn't know what I was getting into. You make these decisions when you're 17. And, uh, it, you know, it's a full scholarship. I thought I was going to be a doctor. I thought the challenge would be good for me. I thought the discipline would be good for me to challenge, you know, to pour my energy into a positive, meaningful way and you pay back in service. But I didn't really know what I was doing, you know, like most teenagers. And so off I go to the Air Force Academy. I get on the plane with combat boots and bras. You know, that's what they tell us to bring because it's the only thing they said they couldn't fit you for. And when I got there, I found out that because I was a woman, I couldn't be a fighter pilot. And it just made me mad. And so it, it, it tapped into my feistiness in a way of like, oh, yeah, well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And people <laughs> laughed at me. They said, it's against the law. And I said, we live in America. Laws change. And I'm going to keep this dream in my heart. I'm going to bloom where I'm planted. I'm going to excel. I'm not going to have a chip on my shoulder. It's not fair, but life's unfair. And I'm going to keep excelling in the moment. And you never know when the door is going to open. And I was in the right place at the right time, you know, with the right qualifications and grit when the door was finally blown open. So what was that law that stopped you from being a fighter so pilot? Women have been serving in uniform since the beginning of our country in, in many capacities, since the American Revolution. Women have been always serving and we've been limited in how we can serve. So after World War II, we have these amazing women pilots in World War II. They're my heroes. I talk about them in the book. Uh, when they passed the law to sort of formally, fully integrate women into the military with restrictions, it was against the law for women to fly combat aircraft and be on combat ships, but not be in ground combat. It was, it was a little, uh, they, they had a hard time defining it, so they never put that into the law. And that law stayed on the books until 1991, after Desert Storm, um, Congress repealed the law. I was actually in pilot training at the time, and I thought I was going to be able to pick a fighter because the law was repealed. But the Pentagon wouldn't change their policy. So I still couldn't pick a fighter out of pilot training. Again, didn't have a chip on my shoulder. Didn't think it was right, but keep blooming where you're planted. So I picked a, a job to be an instructor pilot for a few years to keep building my skills because I really thought they're going to change this soon and I want to be ready. And that's exactly what happened. And what was that motivation that kept you going to say, no, this this is going to happen. This law will change. What was what was driving you? Well, um, look, we're we're America and, and we were you know created on an ideal and we certainly you know strive every day to live up to that ideal. Uh, we we we've not been perfect as a nation. We still have work to do. Uh, but I truly believe at its core that America is about pick the best man for the job, even if she's a woman. And so that was kind of a fundamental, like, just prove you can do it. Not Don't look for special treatment. But man, if, if I graduate and I can fly the plane better than uh, the guy who is in the order of merit below me, aren't we as a country wanting to put the best person in the cockpit? Like, why would we have these restrictions? The plane doesn't care if you're a boy or a girl, right? Uh, the plane just cares if you fly well and you shoot straight. And so, um, you know, just I wanted to show that, like, hey, we can do this, too. Women are patriots, too. Women can serve, too. Women are fighters, too. And so don't just say that we as an entire group can't do something. That's not what America is all about. I mean, so I mean, that's just fundamentally driving me. But then as a, you know, again, as a person, I'm like, I want to show we can do this. I can serve in this way too. Uh, I want to make a difference by being a fighter pilot. It certainly matched my personality, uh, you know, as, as I grew, you know, grew into an adult that uh, being a fighter is who I am. 
And I just was like, it's going to change. I believe that in America, this is going to change. And I'm just going to keep dreaming. It took almost 10 years for me from when I first entered the Air Force Academy to when I was cleared for takeoff for the first time in the A-10 Warthog, um, almost 10 years. And I, I bring the reader into the cockpit during the, during the, uh, in the book so that you can share that takeoff with me. So you mentioned earlier in the interview that in 2001, you sued the U.S. Department of Defense over the military policy that required service women stationed in Saudi Arabia to wear an abaya, which is a body covering when they traveled off base. Why was this such an important battle for all female service members? Well, it was because it, it was about America's values. It's about our Constitution. I raised my right hand as a military officer to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And when I saw that, when I saw that picture, I was just, you know, deployed to Kuwait, walked by the duty desk, saw a picture of a young enlisted woman in Saudi Arabia saying, this is the appropriate way to wear the abaya. I took a double take and I just knew in my gut this was wrong. And don't walk by a problem like I shared. I just, you know, I just felt this conviction that this was wrong. As I, as I formulated and studied this issue and formulated my arguments against it, why would we be using taxpayer dollars to buy Muslim garb and be making our U.S. servicewomen who are over there on deployment wear the garb when they were off base on official duty or off duty? It wasn't just to go shopping, but when you were on duty as well, traveling between bases or going to the airport, I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was wrong. It was against our American values. We're, you know, look, we're over there to defend them, but to defend us. And it's one thing to say we'll be culturally sensitive in different countries. You know, don't shake with your left hand or show the bottom of your foot. But, I mean, Saudi Arabia has got these seventh century practices where women are treated like property. And it's one thing to tolerate that. It's another, you know, to be allies with someone like that and turn a blind eye to their behavior. But it's a whole different thing to then impose those requirements on our own people. I just thought it was so against what we stand for. It's so against what I wore the uniform for and what I took the oath of office for. And I started on this journey to to overturn it. And, uh, you know, again, it took me eight years. So perseverance is certainly a theme in my book here. But ultimately, I prevailed. Yeah. Wow. That is incredible. And after you left the Air Force, you decided to get involved in politics. Why did you choose to run for Congress? Well, uh, I was going to joke. I asked myself that every day. No, I'm just kidding. Um, for me, I, look, this is a continuation of my service. One of my opportunities I had as a military officer was to be a legislative fellow for Senator John Kyle from Arizona. And this is when I was a major back in 1999, and I got to be on his national security team. And I saw from the inside that this was a man of integrity. Of uh, He was a workhorse. Uh, he was a smart, committed man. And I, I didn't walk away from that saying, oh, I want to run for office someday. Some people love the politics. I walked away with this like very strong impression, wow, we need people like him. What they're doing is really important, and we need people who are of integrity and care about the country more than themselves, and are not just focused on their next election, but service and country and honor. Like, we need that there. And so after I retired, I found myself, you know, yelling at the television like a lot of people. You know, like, what are, what are those people doing in D.C.? Like, why can't they get their act together? Um, and I look myself in the mirror, so what are you going to do about it? It's a, a part of our culture as well in the military. Don't complain about something unless you're willing to step up and, and fix it. 
And so I decided to, you know, get into this new combat zone. It's the same oath of office uh, that I took as an officer, as a, as a member of the House and as a senator, same exact wording. So I see this as my next assignment in civilian clothes in a different combat zone called Washington, D.C. And I have to put up with a lot of things that are extremely frustrating, but mm -hmm. I'm at the table, I'm in the room, uh, and I can make a difference uh, for others, for the country, for my constituents at this critical time, and it's an absolute honor. So, Senator, you have a whole chapter of, in your book entitled, quote, Do Things Afraid. How yeah. has fear played a role in pushing you to do what others thought was impossible? Well, we can all relate to fear. And uh, for people who are listening right now, they may feel and resonate that they are being held back by fear. Some people may be right here in the moment, or they can look back in their lives and realize that they have a pattern of fear holding them back. We can all relate to that, as can I. And as I mentioned, I bring the reader into the cockpit of the A-10 Warthog when I was clear for takeoff the first time, 10 years later after I started with this dream, and here it was about to come true, and I felt like I was going to throw up. You know, my heart was beating fast, my mouth was dry, all the things you feel when you feel fear. There was no two-seat models, there were no simulators. So I'm taking off in this airplane, having never flown it before. And I had a choice. I could choose to taxi back in and give in to the fear, or I could choose to take off afraid. And so I talk about in my own life, I feel like we learn courage or fear. And I think sometimes people look, like, look at people like me and say, oh, they just think we were born courageous. We are not. Like an athlete, I had to learn to choose to do things afraid. And I thought back to a couple years after my dad died and I had my first job, but I had to take a little boat and a little dinghy in the dark of night and go under this bridge with rushing water. And I was afraid to do it, but I chose to pilot that boat afraid. And then when I got on the airplane to go to the Air Force Academy with my bras and combat boots, I <laughs> chose to not give in to the fear. I chose to get on the airplane afraid. And all of that gave me the courage to take off afraid that day and then later to fly in combat and to command in combat. And it was a pattern like an athlete of choosing to be courageous and then realizing that the fear has no power over you. And that is applicable to everybody's lives. We can get into a pattern of choosing fear and choosing to be held back from our potential and having that be very familiar. Those who are listening who have been paralyzed by fear know what I'm talking about. Or you can make a choice today to push past your own fears, to break through them, do things afraid, and then that builds your confidence and your courage when the next thing comes and you have that familiar feeling again. So I give very practical ways that you can choose to overcome your own fears. Mm, I love, I really love how practical that is because I think we can so easily kind of uh, give lip service to that, but it's so important to have actual tools uh, yep. for how to navigate that. Now you open up in your book about being a victim of sexual assault, and that's a very brave thing to do. Would you mind just for a moment telling us a little bit about why you did decide to open up about your own journey of, of healing and why you're choosing to share that story? Yeah, thanks. I shared it um, to try to pro provide hope and encouragement to others. And so many women and men have been through similar experiences. And for me, this is something that's a part of who I am. And those who know me have known that. Now, 
at the time that these things happened to me. I didn't tell everyone and I didn't report a lot of things, but I, like many people, but I shared this because I wanted to shine a flashlight for others that if you went through this yesterday or 50 years ago, there's hope for you. There's healing for you that you can find your own path to peace. Uh, and in my case, uh, which again is a very challenging thing to talk about when it comes to these awful crimes that are committed against you to forgiveness. Um, I share the quote that, you know, bitter, bitterness is the pill or the poison you swallow hoping the other person dies. And for those who have been through something like this or some other awful crime or awful betrayal, uh, you still have a choice about how you're going to have that impact your life. And it's not easy. <laughs> My road was not easy out of the abyss and the darkness that I experienced. But by the grace of God and other people around me and putting one foot in front of the other and finding over time my own peace and my own healing, my hope is that I can shine a little light for others to find their own healing in their own lives. Yeah, no, well, thank you for sharing that because it is so powerful. And I know so powerful for everyone who has and will read your book. And personally, I'm just so inspired by your story and what you've written. And I, I think so often, though, when when we read other people's incredible journeys, we can, you know, we can feel empowered in the moment. And then there's mm -hmm. that temptation to we wake up the next morning, and we remember all the reasons why we can't. And it could mm -hmm. be an excuse from, I don't have the money to to I'm too old, or yep. you know, no one in my family has ever done that before. Really, it could be any reason. And it sounds rational in that moment. Mm -hmm. But how do you continue to push past all those thoughts and fears to ultimately achieve your dreams? No, that is so true. And my hope is that the, the readers will not just think this is about, you know, this other person. This is not about me. This is me sharing some unique experiences I have in order to empower you. <laughs> and so it's not meant to be something that's put back on the shelf and not used in your own life. And I would just encourage every single day, be intentional be mindful, be prayerful about what is it that you are being pushed and encouraged to change today? What are you encouraged to do differently today? What does that look like? Uh, a lot of people's plans have gotten derailed in 2020. Uh, I share my journey of getting derailed. And in fact, had I not been derailed from what I wanted to do, I wouldn't have ended up doing what I ended up doing, which ended up being a blessing. And so uh, I would just encourage in the moment, in the day, intentionally and prayerfully, write some things down, write what might, maybe spoke to you in the messages that I had, write what you might need to be prompted on what you might need to do differently, and then come up with a practical way to act on it. Uh, and I just want to encourage people, don't be held back. Life's too short. Um, just put, a, put aside the excuses, find your faith, find your courage, find your purpose, and take off afraid. You're clear for takeoff. <laughs> I love that so much. Well, Senator, we can't let you go without asking probably our favorite question here on Problematic Women, and that is whether or not you consider yourself a feminist. <laughs> well, I, I think the way the, the left has defined this is unfortunate because I've joked that my whole life is uh, you know, I think part of my life purpose is to create cognitive dissonance in people, right? <laughs> uh, like their stereotypes at first, it was like woman warrior. And, you know, and then I used to say, and now it's Republican feminist. And I, I mean it with my own definition of it, which is we're in America, right? And America means that you can be anything you want to be, uh, that you are not held back, 
uh, and that doesn't matter whether you're a boy or a girl or whatever else your attributes are, right? Uh, that you can, you, whatever you, whatever you want to do in this country, you should have the ability to do. Uh, we should make sure all little boys and all little girls know that. And it's a passion of my life to don't just say that you can't do that just because you're a girl. It doesn't matter if you have ovaries or not, right? <laughs> this is about America. And so I hope through my example that it, you know, shakes up some people's stereotypes, but also that it would be an encouragement. My book is not just for women and girls, but it would be encouragement to those who think they're being held back from some reason or another to just break through that glass, break through the stereotype, prove them wrong and meet your own potential. That's what America is all about. That is an awesome answer. Always love all of our guest answers. Well, Senator McSally, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thanks for having me on. God bless you all. You're clear for takeoff. Hey, people <laughs> can go to daretofly.us. And not only can you get my book there, but you can share your own inspiring stories with me. I've heard some amazing stories so far since we've launched this book. And so I'd encourage everybody to go to daretofly.us and you can contact me personally and share your own inspiring stories of how you overcame barriers in your own life, overcame your own fear. I can't, I can't wait to hear the stories. Perfect. Thank you. We'll be sure to link that in today's show notes so everyone can, can find that. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. Are you proud to be an American? We're at such a critical moment in our nation's history, and it's more important than ever that we remind one another why we are blessed and truly proud to call ourselves Americans. The Heritage Foundation and Heritage Action for America have launched the hashtag ProudAmerican campaign. From now through July 4th, we're asking all our listeners to use the hashtag ProudAmerican on social media and share why you are proud to live in the greatest nation in the world. Now it's that time, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematical of the week. The crown goes to Mary Ball Washington, George Washington's mom. Wait, Virginia, is there something ironic about giving a crown to George Washington's mom? How so? Oh, I he didn't want to be a king. <laughs> That's actually true. Sorry, George. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Our colleague Fred Lucas recently interviewed Craig Shirley about his book, Mary Ball Washington, The Untold Story of George Washington's Mother. This is the first definite biography ever to be written about Mary Ball Washington. George Washington's father, he actually passed away when George was just 11 years old. And so his mom, Mary Ball Washington, she raised six kids on her, her own, although one did die in infancy. Uh, but she actually played a really big role in George's life. George Washington, he wanted to be a cabin boy in the British Navy, and his mom convinced him that that was a bad idea. She wrote to her half-brother, John, who lived in London, and he wrote back and said, do not allow George to enter the British Navy because they, they treated colonists so poorly. Uh, and there was even, you know, a risk that he would, you know, get sick on one of those ships and die and wouldn't be taken care of properly. Uh, and George was really open about the influence that his mother had on him. She was an incredibly strong woman of faith. And she helped George to cultivate that in himself to have his own firm foundation in faith. Uh, so pretty neat to see. She played such a critical role in raising up George Washington, who became our first president. 
so this week, when people are trying to really cancel our founding fathers here on Problematic Women, we are excited to celebrate Mary Ball Washington, without whom we wouldn't have George Washington. And, you know, I can't imagine how different our country could have been with what we were joking about at the top of the show. George Washington didn't turn down that crown. You know, there's so many great leaders in our history, but I don't know how many of them could have resisted being king. So go Mary Ball Washington. <laughs> Quite the extraordinary lady. All right, it is time for our Twitter question of the week. And this week, we are asking you all to tweet about what makes you a proud American. When you tweet why you're proud to be American, make sure you use the hashtag proud American and the problematic women. And we're going to go ahead and choose one to read on next week's show. You know, Virginia, I might have to get a really cute photo of my niece and post it. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a fantastic Independence Day. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.